He then who declares the saints are insecure so long as they remain in this evil world, who insists that they may be eternally lost, yea, that some of them, like King Saul and Judas, have perished, repudiates the reliability of holy writ, and signifies that the divine promises are worthless. O oh, my reader, weigh this well. The very veracity of the Lord God is concerned therein. He has promised to keep the feet of his saints, to deliver them from evil, to preserve them unto his heavenly kingdom. And God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Numbers 23, 19. Elisha calls the Puritan used a forcible argument from the less to the greater, the substance of which shall here be given. Since the Lord made good his word in things of a lower consideration, how much more will he in the eternal salvation of his people? If certain persons were destined by him to eminent service in this world, notwithstanding the greatest of difficulties and natural impossibilities which stood in the way to obstruct it, how much more certain is the accomplishment of his purpose concerning those vessels of mercy which which he has ordained for heavenly glory. God promised Abraham that his seed should have the land of Canaan, Genesis 12:7. Years passed, and when little short of a century, his wife was still barren, but a miracle was wrought, and Isaac was born. Isaac married, and for twenty years his wife remained childless. When in answer to prayer, the Lord gave her consent. Chapter 25, verse 21. They had two children, but the Lord rejected the elder, and the younger to whom the promise belonged was in daily danger of being killed by Esau. Chapter 27, verse 41. And to save his life, he fled to Padanaram. While in Padanaram, Laban dealt harshly with him, and when he decided to return home, his father-in-law followed him with evil intentions. But the Lord interposed and warned him in a dream, Genesis 31:23 and 24. But no sooner had Jacob escaped from Laban than Esau comes against him with 400 men, determined to revenge his old grudge. Genesis 32:6. But the Lord melted his heart in a moment and caused him to receive Jacob with affection. When Simeon and Levi so highly provoked the Canaanites, there appeared to be every prospect that Jacob and his family would be exterminated. Genesis 34:25 But the Lord caused such a terror to fall on them that they touched not a single one chapter 35 verse 5 when a seven-year famine came on the land, threatening to consume them by a strange providence, the Lord provided for them in Egypt. There later, Pharaoh sought their destruction, but in vain. By his mighty power, Jehovah brought them forth from the house of bondage, opened a way through the Red Sea, conducted them across the wilderness, and brought them into Canaan. 
Shall he do less for the spiritual seed of Abraham, to whom he has promised the heavenly Canaan for an everlasting heritage? Joseph was one whom the Lord would honor, and in several dreams intimated he should be exalted to a position of dignity and preeminence. Genesis 37. Because of that, his brethren hated him, determined to frustrate those predictions and slay him. Verse 18. And how shall Joseph escape? For they are ten to one, and he the least. In due course they cast him into a pit, where it seemed likely he must perish. But in the good providence of God, some Midianites passed that way, ere any wild beast had found him. He is delivered into their hands, and they bring him to Egypt, and sell him to the captain of Pharaoh's guard, a man not at all likely to show kindness to him. But the Lord is pleased to give him favor in his master's eyes. Chapter 39, verses 3 and 4. Yet, if Joseph's hopes now rose, how quickly were they disappointed. Through the lies of his mistress, he was cast into prison where he spent not a few days, but many years. What prospect now of preferment? Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord was made good. And he became Lord over Egypt. God promised the kingdom of Israel unto David, and while yet a youth he was anointed to it. First Samuel sixteen thirteen. What? Notwithstanding all interveniences, yes, for the Lord had said it, and shall he not do it? Therefore, if Saul cast a javelin at him, unsuspected, to nail him to the wall, a sharpness of eye and agility of body shall be given him to discern and avoid it. Chapter 18, verse 11. If he determined evil against him, Jonathan is moved to inform him. Chapter 19, verse 7. If he send messengers to Naioth, to arrest him, they shall forget their errand and fall a prophesying. Chapters 20 through 24. If he be in a city that will betray him, and no friend there to acquaint him of his peril, the Lord himself is his intelligencer and sends him out. Chapter 23, 12. If Saul's army encompasses him about, and no way to escape is left, the Philistines invade his land, and the king turns away to meet them. Verses 26 and 27. Though there were not on earth to deliver, he, said David, shall send from heaven and save me. Psalm 57, 3. Shortly after Saul was slain, and David came to the throne. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. First Kings thirteen one and 2. Most remarkable was this prophecy, 
the kingdom of Judah had been despised and deserted by the ten tribes. Yet a day will come when the house of David should so recover its power that a member of it would demolish that altar. Nothing seems more contingent and arbitrary than the giving of names to persons. Yet here the name of this man is foretold centuries before his birth, and in due time he was called Josiah. During the interval of 350 years between this prediction and its fulfillment, 2 Kings 23:15 and 16, things transpired which made dead against its accomplishment. Athaliah determined to destroy all the royal seed of David, but Joash is stolen from the rest and preserved. 2 Kings 11.2 Hezekiah falls sick unto death, but 15 years is added to his life, rather than Manasseh, who must be Josiah's grandfather, should be unborn. Chapter 20, verses 6 and 21 Paul was a chosen vessel, appointed to preach Christ to the Gentiles, Acts 9:15, and at last to bear witness of him at Rome, chapter 23, verse 11. This must be done, although bonds, imprisonment, and death itself do attend him in every place. If therefore they lie and wait for him at Damascus, and watch the gates night and day to kill him, he shall be let down by the wall in a basket, and so escape them. Acts 9, 24 and 25. If all Jerusalem be in an uproar to kill him, the chief captain shall come in with an army and rescue him. Chapter 21, verses 31 and 32. Though no friend to Paul, nor to his cause. If more than forty men had bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink until they have killed him, his kinsmen shall hear of it, and by his means the chief captain shall be his friend again and grant him a sufficient convoy. Chapter 23, verses 14 through 23. Not his being once stoned, nor his thrice-suffering shipwreck, nor anything else shall make void the purpose of of God for bearing witness of Christ at Rome. Elisha Coles. Now, my reader, why think you are such instances as the above recorded in the sacred scriptures? Is it not for our instruction and consolation? Is it not to assure us that the promises of God are unimpeachable, that his counsel shall stand, that once the word has gone forth from his mouth, all earth and hell combined is powerless to negative it? If the Lord was so exact in carrying out his word in these lesser things, which related only to time and earth, executing his purpose despite all outward oppositions, working miracles in order to accomplish his pleasure, how much more will he be punctilious in securing the eternal welfare of those whom he has appointed to heavenly glory? If he bore his people of old upon eagles' wings, Exodus 19.17, above the reach of danger, if he kept them as the apple of his eye, Deuteronomy 32.10, with all possible care and tenderness, till he brought them to himself, 
think you that he will now do less for any for whom Christ died? One of the outstanding glories of the gospel is its promise of eternal security to all who truly believe it. The gospel presents no third-rate physician who is competent to treat only the milder cases, but one who heals all manner of sickness, who is capable of curing the most desperate cases. It proclaims no feeble redeemer, but one who is mighty to save, though the world, the and the devil combine against him, he cannot be frustrated. He who triumphed o'er the grave cannot be thwarted by any feebleness or fickleness in his people. He is able, which would not be true if their unwillingness could balk him, to save unto the uttermost them that come unto God by him. Hebrews 7.25 Those whom he pardons he preserves. Therefore, each one who trusts in him, though conscious of his own weakness and wickedness, may confidently exclaim, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The importance of this truth appears clearly if we suppose the opposite, assume that those who flee to Christ for refuge should finally end in the regions of woe, then what? Why, to what purpose would be the proclamation of a gospel which announced so great salvation only for its participants to be eventually disappointed? It would be no better than a beautiful mirage seen by parched travelers in the desert, presenting to their view a life-giving stream only to mock those who sought it. Why, to what purpose did Christ offer himself as a sacrifice to God if his blood avails not for those who trust in it? Why, to what purpose is the Holy Spirit given to God's children if he is unable to subdue the flesh in them and overcome their proclivities to wonder? To what purpose is the divine gift of faith if it fails its possessor in the ultimate outcome? If the final perseverance of the saints be a delusion, then one must close his Bible and sit down in despair. Chapter 3, Its Nature We purpose dealing with this theme and particularly with that aspect of it which is now to be before us in rather a different manner than that which was followed by most of the Calvinistic divines in the past, or rather we propose to throw most of our emphasis upon another angle of it than what they did. Their principal object was to establish this truth by rebutting the error of Arminians, who insist that those who have been redeemed by Christ and regenerated by the Holy Spirit may nevertheless totally and finally apostatize from the faith and so eternally perish. Our chief aim will rather be to counteract the crude manner in which this doctrine has been only too often handled in more recent times and the evil use to which an adulterous generation has put it. 
Israel Armenianism has by no means disappeared from Christendom, yet it is the more recent inroads of antinomianism, the repudiation of the divine law and the turning of God's grace into lasciviousness which have wrought the most damage in our lifetime. It is not sufficiently realized by many of the Lord's own people that far more harm than good is likely to be done by immature gospelers who have more zeal than knowledge and who expect to reap a harvest, secure results before the ground is plowed and harrowed. Many an ignorant evangelist has given his hearers the impression that once they accept Christ as their personal Savior, they need have no concern about the future, and thousands have been lulled into a fatal sleep by the soothing lullaby, once saved, always saved. To imagine that if I commit my soul and its eternal interests into the hands of the Lord, henceforth relieves me of all obligation, is to accept sugar-coated poison from the father of lies. When I deposit my money in the bank for safe custody, then my responsibility is at an end. It is now their duty to protect the same. But it is far otherwise with the soul at conversion. The Christian's responsibility to avoid temptation and shun evil, to use the means of grace and seek after good, lasts as long as he is left in this world. If our ancestors erred on the side of prolixity, their descendants have often injured the cause of Christ by their brevity. Bare statements without qualification or amplification are frequently most misleading. Brief generalizations may content the superficial who lack both the incentive and the patience to make a thorough examination of any subject, but those who value the truth sufficiently to be willing to buy it, Proverbs 23:23. appreciate a detailed analysis, if so be that their contemplation thereof enables them to obtain an intelligent and balanced grasp of an important scriptural theme. The man who accepts a piece of money, be it of paper or metal, after a cursory glance is far more likely to be deceived with a counterfeit than he who scrutinizes it closely. And they who give assent to a mere summarized declaration of this doctrine are in far greater danger of being deluded than the ones who are prepared to carefully and prayerfully examine a systematic exposition thereof. It is, of course, for the latter, we write. Much confusion and misunderstanding has been caused through failure to clearly define terms. Those who assail this doctrine usually set up a man of straw, and then suppose they have achieved a notable victory because so little difficulty was experienced in demolishing so feeble an object, and it must be confessed that only too often those who have posed as the champions of the truth are largely to blame for this. 
It needs little argument to demonstrate that one who is in love with a sin and drinks in iniquity like water does not have his faith heavenwards no matter what experience of grace he claims to have had in the past. Yet it must not be concluded that the Armenian has gained the day when he appeals to the Christian's spiritual instincts and asks, Does it comport with God's holiness for him to own as his dear child one who is trampling upon his commandments? The Calvinist would return a negative reply to such an iniquity as promptly and emphatically as would his opponent. The righteous shall hold on his way, Job 17.9. As Spurgeon pertinently pointed out, the scripture does not teach that a man will reach his journey's end without continuing to travel along the road. It is not true that one act of faith is all, and that nothing is needed of daily faith, prayer, and watchfulness. Our doctrine is the very opposite, namely, that the righteous shall hold on his way, or, in other words, shall continue in faith, in repentance, in prayer, and under the influence of the grace of God. We do not believe in salvation by a physical force which treats a man as a dead log and carries him, whether he will it or not, towards heaven. No, he holds on his way. He is personally active about the matter and plods on uphill and down dale till he reaches his journey's end. We never thought that merely because a man supposes that he once entered on this way, he may therefore conclude that he is certain of salvation even if he leaves the way immediately. No, but we say that he who truly receives the Holy Spirit so that he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall not go back, but persevere in the way of faith. We detest the doctrine that a man who has once believed in Jesus will be saved even if he altogether forsook the path of obedience. In order to define our terms, we must make it quite clear who it is that perseveres and what it is in which he perseveres. It is the saints and none other. This is evident from many passages of Scripture. He will keep the feet of his saints. 1 Samuel 2, 9 For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. Psalm 37, 28 he preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the enemy. Psalm 87.10 He maketh intercession for the saints. Romans 8.27 He shall come to be glorified in his saints. Second Thessalonians 1.10 All such are preserved in God's love and favor, and accordingly they persevere in the faith eschewing all damnable errors. They persevere in a life of faith, clinging to Christ like a drowning man in a life buoy. They persevere in the path of holiness and obedience, walking by the light of God's word and being directed by his precepts. Not perfectly so, nor without wandering, but in the general tenor of their lives. 
Now a saint is a sanctified or separated one. First, he is one of those who were chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world and predestinated to be conformed into the image of his Son. Second, he is one of those who were redeemed by Christ, who gave his life a ransom for them. Third, he is one who has been regenerated by a miracle of grace, brought from death unto life, and thereby set apart from those who are dead in sin. Fourth, he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whereby he is sealed unto the day of redemption. But how may I know whether or not I am a saint? by impartially examining myself in the light of holy writ to see if I possess the character and conduct of one. A saint is one whose back is toward the world and his face toward God, whose affections are drawn unto things above, who yearns for communion with his beloved, who grieves over that in himself which displeases God, who makes conscious of his sins and confesses them to God, who prayerfully endeavors to walk as becometh a Christian, but who daily mourns his many offenses. Only those persevere unto the end who have experienced the saving grace of God. Now grace is not only a divine attribute inherent in his character, it is also a divine principle which he imparts to his people. It is both objective and subjective. Objectively, it is that free favor with which God eternally and unchangingly regards his people. Subjectively, it is that which he communicates to their souls, which resists their native depravity and enables them to hold on their way. A saint is one who not only has found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, 8, but who has also received abundance of grace, Romans 5, 17. Unto every one of us is grace given, Ephesians 4, 7. The Lord giveth grace unto the humble, James 4, 6. And his grace is an operative, influential, and transforming thing. The Lord Jesus is full of grace and truth. And of his fullness do all his people receive, and grace for grace, John 1, 14 and 16. That grace teaches its recipients to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2, 11 and 12. They come to the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 And thereby prove the divine declaration, My grace is sufficient for thee. 2 Corinthians 12.9 From all that has been pointed out above, it follows that when we affirm the final perseverance of the saints, we do not mean, one, that every professing Christian will reach heaven. 
the sprinkling of a few drops of water on the head of an infant does not qualify it for the inheritance of the saints in light. For in a few years of time, that child is seen to be no different than others who received not this ordinance. Nor does an avowal of faith on the part of an adult demonstrate him to be a new creature in Christ. Many born of papish parents have been convinced of the folly of bowing before idols, confessing their sins to a priest and other such absurdities, but conversion to Protestantism is not the same as regeneration as many evidenced in the days of Luther. Many a Jew has been convinced of the messianic claims of Jesus Christ and has believed on him as such, yet this is no proof of saving grace as John 2:23 and 24 John 6:66 6, plainly shows thousands more have been emotionally stirred under the hypnotic appeals of evangelists and have taken their stand for Christ and joined the church but their interest quickly evaporated and they soon returned to their wallowing in the mire 2 nor do we mean that seeming grace cannot be lost. Satan is a clever imitator, so that his tares are indistinguishable by men from the wheat. By reading theological works and sitting under the preaching of the word, an attentive mind can soon acquire an intellectual acquaintance with the truth and be able to discuss the mysteries of the gospel more readily and fluently than can an unlettered child of God. Keen mentality may also be accompanied by a naturally religious disposition which expresses itself in fervent devotions, self-sacrificing effort, and proselytizing zeal. But if such an one relapse and repudiates the truth, that does not overthrow our doctrine. It simply shows he was never born of God. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For uh, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. First John 2.19 Such characters had never been received into the fellowship of apostolic assemblies unless they gave credible appearance of possessing real grace, yet their subsequent departure was proof they had it not. Whosoever hath not in reality from him shall be taken away even that which he seemeth to have. Luke 8:18. 8, 3. Nor do we mean that initial and preparatory grace is a guarantee of glorification. What percentage of blossoms on the apple and plum trees mature and bear fruit? And that is an adumbration in the natural of what is found in the spiritual realm. Many a promising bud is nipped by the frosts of spring and never develops into a flower. In like manner, there is a large number who so far from despising and rejecting it receive the word with joy, yet hath not root in himself, but dureth for a while. Matthew thirteen twenty and 21 That was the case when Christ himself sowed the seed, and many a faithful servant of his has found the same thing duplicated in his own ministerial labors. 
How often has he seen the buds of promise appearing in the lives of some of his young people, only to be saddened later by the discovery that their goodness was as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it went away. Hosea 6, 4 Ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. John 5.35 said Christ of certain ones who sat under the preaching of his forerunner. But observe, he declared not that they had sorrowed unto repentance. Blazing comets and meteors are soon spent and fall from heaven like lightning, but the stars keep their orbits and stations, as do the spiritual stars held fast in Christ's right hand, Revelation 2, 1. There is an initial grace which produces a real but transient effect, and there is a saving grace which secures a permanent result. Hebrews 6, 4 and 5 supplies a solemn illustration of the former. There we read of those who were once enlightened, that is, whose minds were illumined from on high, so that they perceived clearly the excellency of divine things. They tasted of the heavenly gift, so that for a season they lost their relish for the things of the world. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, being convicted by him of their sins, and brought to say with Balaam, Let me die the death of the righteous. Numbers 23.10 But thorns sprang up and choked the good seed so that they bring forth no fruit to perfection. Luke 8:14. Such are cast forth like an untimely birth. 4. Nor do we mean that true grace, if left in our hands, would not be lost. If Adam and Eve, when left to themselves, lost their innocency, how much more would those who are still affected by indwelling sin destroy themselves? Did not the Lord renew them in the inner man day by day? Second Corinthians 4.16 Regeneration does not make the Christian a God, independent and self-sufficient. No, it unites him as a branch to the true vine, as a member of Christ's mystical body, and just as a bough detached from the tree immediately withers, and as an arm or leg cut off from its body is a lifeless thing, so would the saint perish if it were possible to sever him from the Savior. But the believer is not his own keeper. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 3 declares the Apostle, At the new birth our self-righteousness received its death wound, so that we were glad to look outside of ourselves to the righteousness of another. And the more we grow in grace, the more conscious are we of our weakness, and the more are we made strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 5. Nor do we mean that true grace may not be hindered in its operations and suffer a relapse. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, Galatians 5.17, being contrary the one to the other. There is ever a warfare going on between them, one being uppermost today and the other so tomorrow. 
Christian perseverance is to be gauged not so much from single actions as by the more regular habits of the soul, as the functions of the body may be hindered by a swoon or fit, as the activities of the mind are impaired by delirium, so the stirrings of indwelling grace may be interrupted by the power of our natural corruptions. The more the saint yields to the solicitations of the flesh, the feebler become the workings of the principle of grace. That true grace may suffer a serious, though not a fatal, relapse, appears in the cases of Noah, Abraham, David, and Peter, which are recorded for our warning and not for our imitation. The health of the soul varies as does that of the body, and as the latter is frequently the consequence of our own carelessness and folly, such is always the case in connection with the former. Six, nor do we mean that the comforts of true grace cannot be eclipsed. We may indeed lose the sense of it, though not the substance. Communion with Christ is lost when we experience a fall by the way, yet union with Him is not severed thereby. Mutual comforts may be suspended between man and wife, though the conjugal knot be not dissolved. Believers may be separated from Christ's smile, yet not so from His heart. If they wander from the sun of righteousness, how can they expect to enjoy His light and warmth? Sin and wretchedness, holiness and happiness are inseparably joined together. The way of the transgressor is hard, but peace and joy are the portion of the upright. As a parent suffers his child to scorch his fingers at the flame, that he may learn to dread the fire, so God permits his people to lose their comforts for a season, that they may prove the bitterness of sin, but he draws them back again unto himself before they are destroyed thereby. 7. Nor do we mean that the presence of indwelling grace renders it unnecessary that its possessor should persevere. Yet this is one of the silly inferences which Arminians are fond of drawing. They say, if it is absolutely certain that God will preserve his people from total apostasy, then there is no real need why they must persevere. As well might we argue that it is unnecessary for us to breathe because God gives us a breath, or that Hezekiah needed no longer to eat and drink because God had promised he should live another 15 years. Wherever saving grace is bestowed, it is accompanied by the spirit of a sound mind, Second Timothy 1, 6 so that the soul is preserved from trifling with God or reasoning like a madman. Christians are called upon to work out their own salvation with a fear and a trembling, not to conduct themselves recklessly and to enable them thereto. God worketh in them both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Grace does not annul our responsibility, but fits us to discharge it. It relieves from no duties, but equips for the performance of them. 
We now turn to the positive side, having dealt upon what is not signified or implied by the final perseverance of the saints. Let us now endeavor to show whereof it consists. And here it should be duly noted that the Holy Spirit has not restricted himself to a single expression, but has used a great variety of words to describe this duty and blessing. In matters of great spiritual importance, God has employed many different terms in his word for the instruction, comfort, and support of his people. Out of the scores which set forth the believer's perseverance, we may cite these. It is to continue following the Lord our God, 1 Samuel 2.14, to walk in the paths of righteousness, Psalm 23.5, to be steadfast in the covenant, Psalm 78.37, to endure unto the end, Matthew 24.13, to deny self and take up the cross daily, Luke 9.23, to abide in Christ, John 15:4 to cleave unto the Lord Acts 11:23 to press toward the mark Philippians 3:14 to continue in the faith grounded and settled Colossians 1:13 to hold a faith and a good conscience 1 Timothy 1:19 to hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Hebrews 3, 6. To run with patience the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12, 1. To establish our hearts. James 5, 8. To be faithful unto death. Revelation 2, 10. In the limited space at our disposal, it is advisable to epitomize the main branches of this subject under a few heads. 1. Spiritual perseverance is the maintaining of a holy profession or a continuance in the word and doctrine of Christ. Wherever saving faith is imparted, the soul receives the scriptures as a divine revelation, as the very word of God. Faith is the visive faculty of the heart by which the majesty and excellency of the truth is perceived and by which such conviction and certainty is conveyed that the soul knows it is none other than the living God speaking to him. Faith hath received his testimony and thereby hath set to his seal that God is true. John 3.33 Henceforth he takes his stand on the impregnable rock of holy writ, and neither man nor devil can make him move therefrom. The voice of a stranger he will not follow, John 10:5. While one who is not regenerated may intellectually believe and verbally profess his faith in the whole of revealed truth, yet no regenerated person will repudiate the same. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 How many have done so within the memory of our older readers, those who were looked upon as towers of orthodoxy, succumbed to evolutionism and the higher criticism. Those who were regarded as staunch Protestants became ensnared by Romanism. Multitudes of the rank and file 
who were once members of evangelical churches and teachers in the Sunday schools have been poisoned by infidelity and repudiated their former beliefs. But all such cases were merely the chaff being separated from the wheat, thereby causing the true to stand out more plainly from the false. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest. 1 Corinthians 11:19. When many of Christ's disciples went back and walked no more with him, the apostles were not shaken. For when he asked them, Will ye also go away? Their spokesman answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John six sixty six and 68. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.